welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Actually, for this particular episode, I'm not all that sad. One, I'm not recording in the usual spot of my closet, so that's really nice. And the reason I'm not recording in my closet is because for this episode, which I am recording pretty far in advance, I'm joined by a very special guest host, my twin sister, Catherine. Catherine, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Catherine. Um, I'm Amelia's twin. I graduated Brandeis in 2016 with a double major in history and politics, and my main focus is 20th century American social and political history and how power is transferred in tipping points of power. So Catherine is joining me for this episode to discuss today's study guide subject, John Brown. John Brown was a goddamn American hero, and I will not hear otherwise. And I thought it'd be appropriate to have Catherine join me for this episode, because frankly, you're pretty obsessed with John Brown, right? I'm not obsessed. He just really represents a culmination of my interests, and I normally don't care about anything that happened before the Civil War, so he's a real exception. And I know for most of the study guide, we've mostly just been focusing on presidents, but John Brown and what he did was so pivotal to getting us to the Civil War, and he himself is such an interesting guy that I thought, why not cover him? Also, it was a fun way for me to bond with my twin sister. In history class, you probably learned about John Brown. And most of what you learn is wrong in Southern propaganda that was written after the Reconstruction. So the way you probably learned about John Brown in history class was that guy at Harper's Ferry with the crazy eyes. But as we're going to learn in the study guide, he's so much more. This study guide involves a trip to Canada, John Wilkes Booth, and way too many children. Let's begin. John Brown is born May 9th, 1800, in the town of Torrington, Connecticut. He's the fourth of eight children. His parents are Owen Brown and Ruth Mills. Yes, Catherine. So Owen Brown, in his own right, deserves a lot more attention in American history. He was an incredibly prominent abolitionist and helped found both the colleges of Case Western and Oberlin. And when John Brown was a child, Owen Brown actually operated Underground Railroad stops, which helped expose John to the horrors of slavery at a very early age. So he doesn't get enough credit amongst white abolitionists, in my humble opinion. Also, Oberlin was the first college to enroll black students with white students, so that was pretty cool. Also, Oberlin was co-educational from its founding, which is pretty neat given that it was founded in the mid-19th century. I remember talking about that in my application to Oberlin. Um, Yeah, like Catherine said, his parents were pretty involved in the abolitionist movement. And also deeply religious. Yeah, they were very strict, very religious. Pretty soon after John Brown's birth in 1805, the family moves from Connecticut to Ohio. John Brown's father, Owen, is a cattle breeder and land speculator. And if you're going to be breeding cattle and investing in land, you want to go somewhere with a lot of open land. And in the early 1800s, that's going to be the Midwest, somewhere like 
Ohio. His father opens a tannery in Ohio and is going to apprentice a young man by the name of Jesse, Jesse Grant. Jesse Grant was Ulysses S. Grant's father. Jesse is also an unsung American hero because he was so horrified by slavery in the South that he decided to move from the South to the North so he wouldn't have to live in a slave state anymore. Yeah, so... Sorry to interrupt. No, you, it's okay. Interrupt away. You know much more on this topic than I do. Also, you don't need to, like, raise your hand. Because when you do that, I feel like I'm back, like, in the classroom calling on students. And you're my sister. You're, like, vaguely my equal. It makes me feel very uncomfortable. Anyway, so the family is in Ohio. Owen and Ruth are getting involved in the Oberlin Institute, a.k.a. Oberlin College. Kate's Western. They're involved in the Underground Railroad. They're also decently friendly with local Native American tribes, which, as we all know, is very rare for white people in the early 1800s. However, John Brown isn't going to stay in the Midwest all that long because when he's 16, 16 he moves to, Ma- to Western Massachusetts, to Pittsfield, because he really wants to train to be a Congregationalist minister. That's his like big goal in life, and he's super hyped about it. But then he has a series of eye infections and eye issues, and he has to kind of give up on the ministering dream because of that. And he was absolutely devastated by it. Yeah, it turns out if you can't read, it's kind of hard to give sermons from the Bible. But it really makes you wonder what would have happened if Brown had become a minister as opposed to a farmer. Like, how would that have changed... Would that have changed his ideology and the trajectory, or would he have been some sort of, like, cool avenging minister? Yeah. And I think, as a cool side note, the school he was attending back east was another co-ed school. So, like, throughout John Brown's life, he's, like, involved in all these, like, co-ed institutions, which is sort of this, like, new thing that's going on in these various, like, religious movements as part of the Second Great Awakening. And I hated going over the Second Great Awakening with my students when I was teaching. Personally, I find the Second Great Awakening really boring, but you do see some like cool stuff in terms of like women in education. Mm-hmm. So after his eyesight starts failing and he has to drop out of school and quit being a minister, John Brown moves back to Ohio, back to his family, and he opens a tannery of his own. And when he's 20 in 1820, it's really easy to keep track of John Brown's age because he was born in 1800, he gets married. He marries a woman named Dianthe Lusk, who was the family's housekeeper's daughter. And John and Dianthe will have seven children together. John Jr., Jason, Owen, Frederick, Ruth, Frederick II, and an unnamed son who dies in infancy. During his marriage to Dianthe, the family is going to move to eastern Pennsylvania. And while in eastern Pennsylvania, John Brown will open a new tannery there, and things are going to go fairly well until about 1831. Because in 1831, first Frederick I is going to die, then Diantha gives birth again to Frederick II, and then very soon she gives birth to this unnamed infant son who dies, and almost immediately after, Diantha dies, because welcome to being a woman in the early 1800s. So after you die of childbirth. After Dianthe's death, um, his business, which was like moderately successful, he started, kind of starts spiraling. He goes into really deep debt. He's devastated and pretty sad. 
um, and having a lot of financial issues. And then in 1833, he gets married a second time to a 16-year-old. He's 33 years old. It's great. The 1800s were really messed up. I'm. This is like the only part of John Brown's life that I actually really struggle to defend. Yeah, so his second wife, Mary Ann Day, is the daughter of his new housekeeper. And Mary Ann and John will have 13. 13. Yeah, 13 children together. So um, Mary Ann, God bless you. Like, you are a saint for having 13 children. And these 13 children are going to be Sarah, Watson, Salmon, Charles, Oliver, Peter, Austin, Annie, Amelia, Sarah II, Ellen, and a named son, and Ellen II. Sarah, Charles, Peter, Austin, Amelia, and Ellen, the first, are all going to die in childhood. Amelia literally gets scalded to death by hot water as a baby. So, like, that's a fun and not at all horrifying way to die. Yeah, that's just really, really, really nice. By 1836, yet again... No, I have an 1835 fact. Oh, okay. So, during this time, John Brown is really involved in the Underground Railroad and the abolitionist movement, but he hasn't become fully radicalized yet. Um, And by 1835, historians believe he helped... He individually helped around 2,500 slaves escape to freedom through the Underground Railroad. Which is, like, pretty impressive. Once you, like... Like, if you think about it. And his involvement with freeing slaves is only going to get more and more intense. Like, as an individual actor. The next year, the family moves back to Ohio, to Franklin County. And once again, the Brown family is going to be suffering through a series of economic difficulties. The United States is going through a series of financial panics. Thanks in large part to Andrew Jackson's really fucking stupid decision to remove the U.S.'s central bank. Great job, Andrew Jackson. We love you so much. And the Brown family is going to sort of cycle through a series of debts. And John Brown is going to try out a series of different jobs. None of them are really going to quite stick. And finally, he's going to be like, I'm going to become a sheep breeder. And then it is 1837. And, and 1837, I would say, is the radicalization year. Yeah, that's really the turning point so for John Brown. in 1837, Elijah P. Lovejoy, who is an editor of a abolitionist newspaper in Illinois, is murdered by a mob, by an anti-abolitionist mob. Not necessarily a pro-slavery mob, they're just anti-abolitionists, which is like, the politics of abolitionism were super interesting and... If I had my own podcast, I would do an episode about them. So Elijah P. Lovejoy is murdered, and his murderers essentially go free. Like, nobody's really ever held accountable for it. And John Brown is incredibly upset. And when Elijah P. Lovejoy is murdered, John Brown vows, Here before God, in the presence of these witnesses, from this time I I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. So that's... Really going to kick things off. Yeah, that's a pretty strong statement to make. So he's going to continue doing his anti-slavery activities, right? He's going to keep working on the Underground Railroad. He's going to keep doing his sheep breeding business for the next decade or so. Mm -hmm. In 1846, Brown is going to move his family to Springfield, Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. 
Um, and the Springfield was probably the most anti-slavery city in America at this point, I'd say. Yeah, it's a super anti-slavery city. It's sort of a center of abolitionist sentiment. The local church in Springfield is going to be hosting lectures by major abolitionists. The Sanford Street Free Church, now known as St. John's Congregational Church. And yeah, it's going to be hosting lectures by abolitionists like Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass. And while he's living in Springfield, John Brown is going to meet Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass, after meeting John Brown, is really impressed with him, but also says John Brown makes him a little less hopeful for a the idea of a peaceful abolition of slavery, which is really a good bit of foreshadowing on Frederick Douglass's part. Yeah, John Brown and Frederick Douglass are going to have an interesting relationship. John Brown thinks that Frederick Douglass is way too overly optimistic, and the whole idea of having a peaceful resolution of slavery is hopeless. And Frederick Douglass on John Brown says, quote, though a white gentleman is in sympathy a black man and as deeply interested in our cause as though his own soul had been pierced with the iron of slavery. Which I think is a really interesting quote because I think it really highlights how, unlike a lot of abolitionists, John Brown would, like, legitimately saw black people as equal and was just like it wasn't just like a slavery is wrong thing like it was such a deeply religious thing for him and that actually makes me respect him a lot because especially by the standards of the day most abolitionists were like pretty racist and he was incredibly not racist like he really saw black people and native americans and women as his equal, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, say what you will about John Brown. Like, he had his issues, but, like, in terms of, like, equality, he wasn't a bad guy. Like, I would say some of his views are even a little radical, like, progressive on race for today. Yeah, oh, for sure, totally. For sure. That being said, his business in Massachusetts is not going to do super great. There's a massive sheep and wool monopoly in Massachusetts that's existed for centuries and John Brown and his business partners can't really break into it. Also he starts developing a bit of a reputation for being a little on the radical side which doesn't help things. So two years after moving back east the entire Brown family is going to move to upstate New York by the Adirondacks. Did I say that right? Okay good. I'm really bad at pronouncing, like, East Coast place names because California. So they're going to move to upstate New York. They're going to live there for two years. They're sort of living pretty close to the Canadian border. And while John Brown and his family is in upstate New York, John Brown is going to sort of come up with this plan for a new and improved Underground Railroad. And part of his inspiration for needing this new and improved Underground Railroad is a little thing called the Fugitive Slave Act. Yes. Which says, which is part of the dumb grand bargain that they were doing to try to prevent the Civil War and obviously didn't work. Yeah, the Fugitive Slave Act, part of the Compromise of 1850, we talked about it in the Millard Fillmore Study Guide, lest we forgot. So do you want me to explain the Fugitive Slave Act? Or? Yeah, yeah, okay. let's do a quick recap of Fugitive Slave So the Slave Fugitive Act. Slave Act essentially says that northern city northern law enforcement and cities and politicians and citizens have to assist southern law enforcement and slave catchers in catching fugitive slaves and that's obviously a huge issue and northerners rightly see it as an attack on their own sovereignty and 
like it really kind of kicks off amongst the abolitionists and it inspires John Brown to create his own organization to help free slaves called the League of Gileadites. Um, so I know a lot of people who watch Handmaid's Tale think of Gilead as being a bad thing because that's the name of the society. And then a lot of people in public health circles know of Gilead as being the drug manufacturer that manufactures Truvada and jacks the prices up. But in the Bible, Gilead is actually a mountain. And Mount Gilead is where the bravest Israelite soldiers would go and meet before going into battle. So the name really makes sense if you're John Brown and you're this deeply religious guy who really sees himself as like the, like who sees himself in very biblical terms, not as Jesus or John the Baptist, but as like a traditional Israelite. So that's why he chose the name. Yeah, and like as part of this league, John Brown has all these ideas for like how to improve the Underground Railroad and combat slavery more effectively. One aspect is creating these series of forts and having plantation raids where they would sort of go down and raid plantations and bring slaves like up to the forts and then from the forts into Canada in order to make slavery more economically unviable. And also to make it more aggressive so it wasn't just people escaping it was abolitionists going down yeah and like stealing slaves yeah and like he makes the league sort of more militant he is very focused on preventing slaves from being recaptured and yes he never quite does the plantation raids but the league of gileadites is very so successful. successful yeah so, so they're successful really successful so the league of gileadites in their entire existence in springfield not a single escaped slave who made it to Springfield was taken back to the South. That is how successful they were. Yeah, that's an 100% batting average. Yeah, like, amazing. Ted Williams wishes. Yeah. So, he's only, like, running this league for about four years, until 1854. 1854, much like 1837, is going to be another huge turning point in John Brown's radicalization. Because in 1854, Kansas happens. And we talked about Kansas in the Franklin Pierce episode because of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. But in case you forget, let's do another quick little recap. Bleeding Kansas. Adam, would you like to quickly talk about Bleeding Kansas for us? No. Oh. I actually don't have notes on Bleeding Kansas. Um, okay. But I can essentially explain it because I've written a couple papers about yeah. it. And it's like something I'm like kind of interested in. Cool. So essentially... Um, the idea was Kansas and Nebraska would get you to decide if they were going to be free or slave states. But what would happen is like a ton of slave owners would pour into the Kansas territories to try to overwhelm it. And then a bunch of abolitionists would then pour in in response. And they were kind of battling out to see who would have more people. And it became really violent. There were four different constitutions. So it was a real crisis of like what was the legitimate government and who had the legitimate, like, who was the legitimate party in power, and it bled over into Missouri a little bit, too, so it was just a lot of violence. Yeah, and I think a big thing to remember, this whole Bleeding Kansas thing, which comes out of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, one proposed by Stephen Douglas, um, and the other reason why it pissed off so many abolitionists is Kansas is above the Missouri Compromise line, so under the Missouri Compromise of 1820, Kansas should be a free state, free state territory this before drugs um so that's a big reason why like so many abolitionists are so pissed off well and also because 
the another reason they're pissed off is if this is going to be the future of every territory, that's going to be a big issue for the balance of power in the Senate. Yeah. Because they really, like, they, the abolitionists and the free soilers had this fundamental belief that the new territories were not going to be slave yeah. territories. Yeah. They were it going to be free. It completely throws everything off. And then it also throws off the free soil and free labor yeah. ideology. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen Douglas. Um, Stephen Douglas sucks. Yeah. So John Brown, a few of his older sons, already were living in Kansas, and they let him know how violent things are getting and how all these pro-slavery people from Missouri are flooding in. And in October 1855, John Brown moves the entire family from upstate New York to Kansas to, and I quote, defeat Satan and his legions, which makes it pretty damn clear how he feels about the entire Kansas land and how things might get a little violent. And 1856 is the year where the violence for John Brown really kicks off. So so outside of John Brown's life, in 1856, Charles Sumner gets beaten by Preston Brooks on the floor of the U.S. Senate and is like horribly injured because they were pretty metal back then and would like literally beat each other up, which is kind of cool. But they got into, essentially he got beaten for being this radical abolitionist from Massachusetts and Preston Brooks was from the South. And it was kind of like this big controversy. Yeah. And that really starts radicalizing some otherwise non-radical abolitionists where it's like, they're physically beating our people on the floor of the Senate. And then for John- And, Char- and Charles um, Preston Brooks like wasn't kicked out of yeah. Congress for it. Preston he Brooks- wasn't punished. Yeah. And so this makes John Brown realize that most abolitionists are cowardly and weak and aren't going to take action on their own. They're all talk, but no walk. So he decides to take action with the... Well, two, two other things happened before this, too. Okay. Well, one, his father dies right around this time. Yes, yes, yes. And then also, in early May, a group of pro-slavery men attack the town of Lawrence, Kansas, and burn down a pro-abolitionist newspaper office and the main hotel in Lawrence, which is like a huge slap in the face to the abolitionists in Kansas, because yes. Lawrence was like the center of abolitionist activity in Kansas. So by the end of the month, John Brown is like, fuck this, it's party time. So party time is the Potawatomi Massacre. So John Brown and some other radical abolitionists in Kansas attack and murder five men who are pro-slavery and some of whom were slave catchers. And it's a pretty pretty brutal, violent massacre. There's, like, hacking to death with swords. Yeah. Like, it's not a, like, quick and easy death. And this really kicks off the most violent period in Bleeding Kansas, and stuff is getting really bad, to the point where, in August, a pro-slavery militia of 300-ish people from Missouri kill John Brown's son, Frederick. And John Brown is not happy. John Brown only has about 28 or 30 men, but still manages to kill 40 members of the militia. So they're doing quite well for themselves. They don't fully hold off the militia, obviously, because they're just so hilariously outnumbered. But I think this is a first example of like John Brown having like no chance of winning. But, but going like, for it anyway. Fuck it, I'm going to keep fighting. But also not really having military strategy. But so they're really outnumbered, but abolitionists and free soil Kansas residents are actually super impressed. And he really starts being seen as a hero because it's like, 
he's brave enough and stupid enough and crazy enough to do this. I think the other big thing to remember is, even though everyone knows John Brown like is involved in these murders, and we have many people dying, we have about like thirty people dying in like this three month period over the slavery issue. No one is ever put on trial. No one is ever sentenced. It's sort of this like free for all, lawless. I say this with deep love and affection in my heart for Sinn Féin and for John Brown. John Brown really is the Jerry Adams of Bleeding Kansas. John Brown walks and Jerry Adams can die. (laughs) Yeah, and don't yell at Amelia for my Irish nationalism. Like, I'm really sorry. I'm not a terrorist apologizer, Um, I promise. So yeah, we have this like crazy three-month period of violence. Finally, in September 1856, Kansas gets a new governor. And this new governor is like, you guys, we need to calm this down. And the new governor goes to John Brown. He's like, look, if you leave the state, I won't prosecute you. No one will be in trouble. And John Brown's like, yeah, okay, fine. And John Brown packs up his family and goes back east. But as he's heading east, he's still kind of salty. And he starts vaguely in the back of his head, formulating a plan to attack the South, to end slavery, once and for all. So before we start talking about his final big plan to end slavery once and for all, let's quickly recap where John Brown is. So John Brown grew up in a very religious, very pro-abolition family. He got married twice, had a fuck ton of kids. In 1837, that's a fuck ton. In 1837, he started to radicalize against slavery after a pro-abolitionist newspaper editor was murdered. He bounced around between the Midwest and New England, becoming more and more anti-slavery the entire time. In 1850, after the Fugitive Slave Act happened, John Brown became convinced that the best way to end slavery was to start doing raids into the South to capture slaves and bring them up North. In 1854, as bleeding Kansas broke out, he moved his family to Kansas and got involved in anti-slavery violence there. He may or may not have killed some people himself and finally left Kansas at the end of 1856 to avoid being arrested. As time progressed, he became more and more radically violent in his anti-slavery beliefs, but we still believe he is an American hero because owning people is wrong. So let's talk about how we get from just, you know, shooting people to keep on promoting people to a full-on assault on an American military base. And so part of this journey um, involves a group called the Secret Six? Yeah, that's from Massachusetts. So the Secret Six were a group of six, obviously, wealthy abolitionists who... John Brown meets. And... Because John Brown is going to move back to the East Coast. He's going to be hanging out, laying low in Massachusetts. And he kind of meet, and he gets to know them through William Lloyd Garrison and some other prominent abolitionists who aren't quite as radical. And do you want to share the names of the six? Yeah, so we have the Secret Six, who are these really wealthy abolitionists who are like, yeah, we will pay for whatever activities you choose to carry out. And the Secret Six are going to be Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Samuel Gridley Howe, Thomas Parker, Franklin Benjamin Sanborn, Garrett Smith, George Luther Stearns. They're very wealthy. They hate slavery. And they gave John Brown money 
to do whatever he wants and John Brown uses it to buy 200 rifles and ammunition and about a thousand spears and then he also hired- that's totally what you need like that is enough stuff to take over multiple states and he starts hiring um military experts from Europe to be drill masters and the main military expert that John Brown's gonna use is this guy named Hugh Forbes who is a human who existed. Hugh Forbes had been a freedom fighter under Giuseppe Garibaldi in Italy during the attempts to unify Italy. And Forbes is like, oh yeah, I will totally train your ragtag army. Except then Hugh Forbes and John Brown have a falling out over strategy and how much Hugh Forbes can get paid. So Hugh Forbes is like, yeah, you know what? I'm not gonna work with you and starts threatening to rat John Brown out to the federal government. While all this is going on, John Brown is also meeting up with people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and Harriet Tubman. And they're giving him a lot of moral support and they're like, you go John Brown, we love you. But whenever John Brown's like, so do you want to like join up and fight with me? They're, they're all like, like, no. No, thank you. Especially Henry David Thoreau, who's kind of the worst. We're very anti-Thoreau in this household. We are. Walden isn't even that impressive. His mom would cook him and bring him meals. Like, congrats, I guess. But by early 1858, John Brown does have a plan. He has a group of about 12 guys, including his son, Owen. And he leads these 12 men up to Canada. And when he's in Canada, he starts making plans for this grand state that he's going to create when he invades the South. And he starts like writing up a little constitution for the government of the state. And he's like, yes, Frederick Douglass is going to be the president of this brand new government that I'm making. I mean, it's not a bad idea. And the capital of the state is going to be in Kansas. And everyone's like, okay, John Brown, like, you do you. And while he's in Canada, he's trying to recruit Canadians. He's doing all this fun stuff. And it doesn't really go anywhere because Hugh Forbes keeps threatening to turn him over to the authorities. So then he leaves Canada. He runs back down to Kansas for a little bit. And he's able to go back to Kansas because by 1858, Bleeding Kansas has kind of cooled off a little bit because a free soil governor is in charge and they finally have a like kind of functional constitution. Yeah. So he's back in Kansas. And while he's in Kansas, he's like, YOLO, let's do a slave raid. And let's get some practice for the actual thing. So he and his men pull off a actually quite successful slave raid. They free 11 slaves in December 1858, and they also managed to take a couple of Southern white men captured or hostage, and, like, they get supplies and stuff. So he's feeling pretty good about this. Like, he's just done a successful, like, trial run. Yeah, so John Brown and his 12 men, they have 11 slaves, and now they're in Missouri, and he's like, okay, we have to get up to Canada now. He and his men and the slaves go from Missouri to Canada via Detroit, outrunning slave hunters the entire way. They make it up to Canada in less than three months, so they cover over 1,500 miles. No one gets captured, and he's feeling great. He feels like this little raid and the successful escape shows that his plan for this new, longer underground railroad with active raids might actually work. 
He then spends the next few months traveling through New England, giving lectures, trying to gather more support for this whole plan of like a raiding underground railroad. And he gives his last lecture on May 9th, 1859 in Concord, Massachusetts. And this final lecture is going to have a lot of like major figures attending it, such as Thoreau, Emerson, and the father of Louisa May Alcott, Bronson Alcott, who once again was a human being who existed, who we aren't a particular fan of. By the end of May 1859, he's like, okay, cool. I've done what I can. It's time for me to go. And he and his men are going to leave for Harper's Ferry by the end of June. So let's talk about Harper's Ferry. So the basic plan at Harper's, Harper's Ferry is in Virginia. Yes. And, the base, and it's a federal armory. And the basic plan is they're going to raid the armory and use those weapons and give the weapons to slaves. And that's going to start kicking off this rebellion. And the slaves are going to kill their masters and then spread rebellion through the South. And while the rebellion's happening, people are going to be escaping on his new underground railroad while they're doing raids to help them. And it will essentially set up this like free state in the South and end slavery. And in his defense... Like, in retrospect, Ulysses S. Grant actually said it wasn't a horrible idea. He just needed more men who actually had military training. So if, like, Ulysses S. Grant had been leading it, it could have worked. John Brown chooses Harper Ferry as a site. Harper's Ferry, like Catherine said, is a federal armory. It's about 60 miles away from Washington, D.C. in Virginia. It's right between the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers, so it has, like, nice strategic access. The site includes a rifle works, an arsenal. It's right by a railroad. It's one of the most industrialized sections of the South. And for the South, it had a pretty sizable immigrant and northern population. So in terms of sites, it should have been fairly sympathetic to John Brown. It was a fairly small town. It only had about 3,000 people in it. There were about 300 slaves living within the town, but in the surrounding areas, there were about 18,000 slaves. And John Brown expects as soon as he starts taking over the town, all the slaves will come join him. So by July 1859, John Brown is settled in the Harper's Ferry area. And he's like pretty sneaky about it because he obviously doesn't want the people of Harper's Ferry to be like, oh, John Brown is here to kick off a war. So he pretends that he's like a farmer who's interested in moving and stuff and like sets up a little farm with some of his daughters and stuff. So he's expecting recruits to come pouring in, but no one really shows up. He thinks... Harriet Tubman is going to join him as a general. She does not. He thinks... Like, let Harriet Tubman be. <laughs> he thinks maybe Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison will come. But both of them are like, John Brown, your plan is absolutely batshit. Please don't do this. John Brown's plan calls for about 4,500 men to work. The number of men he ends up having with him is... 21. Like Ulysses S. Grant said, if he had an army led by Grant, it would have worked. Yeah, so he definitely does not have the men to pull it off, which is really going to be the big flaw. Instead of waiting around to get more recruits, John Brown decides to go for it anyway, to shoot his shot, and he starts his attack on Harper's Ferry 
on October 16, 1859. His main focus is to seize the town's arsenal and musket factory. Since the arsenal has about 100,000 rifles in it, and he can then use those rifles to arm the slaves that are obviously going to come flocking to join him in a rebellion against the South. John Brown does manage to grab the railroad station. That's really going to be his only success. In the process of seizing the railroad station, the raid is going to have its first casualty. The first casualty of the raid is not going to be a slave owner. It's not going to be a white guy. It's not going to be one of John Brown's men. It's going to be a freed black man, a railroad porter named Hayward Shepherd, which really isn't a cute look for John Brown. Then John Brown sends his men to capture various local slave owners, including George Washington's grandnephew. They do varying levels of success at that. And then reports start going out of Harper's Ferry that there is an invasion led by the insane lunatic that is John Brown. Early reports out of Harper's Ferry say that John Brown has between 50 and 200 white men with him and about 600 escaped slaves with him. None of that's true. No, that's true. There are less than 30 people with John Brown. John Brown expects that over a thousand slaves will come and join him. That does not happen. Instead, local white militias come running to Harper's Ferry to stop the raid. The first militia on the scene is the Jefferson Guards from Charlestown. They quickly take the railroad bridge and cut off any possible escape route for John Brown and his men. John Brown and his men are either going to have to fight their way out of Harper's Ferry or die. By the end of the first day, John Brown and his men are surrounded by multiple militia groups and they end up pulling up in the rifle works and the engine house. John Brown tries to have his son Watson negotiate with the various militias, but Watson ends up getting shot and killed which that's exactly what you want your negotiator to do. Yeah. So John Brown and his men are stuck in the engine house. They start trying to like snipe militia men. They manage to snipe and kill the town mayor, but not much else. So we just have tension, tension, tension. So the United States president, James Buchanan is like, oh fuck, I have to deal with this. And I'm James Buchanan. I am quite possibly the most incompetent human being known to mankind. Was James Buchanan the worst U.S. president? Sidebar nation. I think, I mean... <laughs> until current I, president aside. Yeah, we'll do it until the current president's term is up. But, I mean, I think everybody on this pod knows we really don't like Trump. Yeah. Um, I would say James Buchanan... Is definitely one of the worst presidents. Who else would you say is a bad president? Warren G. Harding. Yeah, okay. So all these white guys with weird-sounding white guy names are the worst presidents in U.S. history. Yeah, so James Buchanan, wildly incompetent. He's like, I cannot deal with this. So he sends a um, man named Robert E. Lee to go down and deal with this whole situation. Fuck Robert E. Lee. He is not an American hero. No, Robert E. Lee sucks. And Robert E. Lee goes down with a group of Marines. And in fairness to Robert E. Lee, in this one moment, he tries to like negotiate things and keep things from escalating. He's like, look, 
let's all stand down, let's all cool off, let's like not kill each other. And John Brown's like, I will release my hostages if me and my men can like run off to Maryland and won't be punished. And Robert E. Lee is like, yeah, no, I can't let you do that. I'm under orders. And for the one time in my life, I'm actually going to follow orders. So John Brown is like, mm, no, not going to stand down. So Robert E. Lee attacks the engine house. And during this attack on the engine house, this is a really fun and epic moment. John Brown. Somebody tries to stab John Brown. Yeah, and like the sword hits John Brown in the stomach. But luckily, John Brown is wearing a belt and his sword, the sword sort of hits the belt and bounces off and doesn't actually stab his body. So John Brown survives. Instead- It's a real Mythbusters moment. Yeah, instead he ends up getting whacked in the head with a sword handle and he's knocked unconscious and is out of commission and will be captured. Ultimately, Robert E. Lee and the Marines will take over the engine house and will put down the raid. Of all the men who go to the raid with John Brown, only seven will survive, two will escape, five will be taken prisoner, the rest will die. And how many men did John Brown and his merry band of marauders kill? Four. Four. Yeah, not exactly a rousing success. So after the raid, John Brown is put on trial for treason. And, and first degree murder. murder. And, well, but yeah. mostly for treason. Yeah, so he's put on yeah. trial for treason, first degree murder, not murder, like I said earlier. Murder. And conspiring with African Americans because in the 1850s, conspiracy with people of another race than you was a crime. During the trial, there's a whole debate about whether or not John Brown can be sentenced for treason in a state that he isn't a resident of, and if you can be sentenced for treason for an attempted rebellion that isn't even successful, his lawyers argue no, you can't be sentenced for treason if the rebellion was like a total failure from the get-go and you can't be sentenced for treason for a state that you aren't a resident of, but neither of his arguments hold up in court. And he is sentenced to death. He's actually the first American um, who's executed for treason. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Apparently, according to Wikipedia. Mm. Um, So he's sentenced to death. That's a really legitimate source. It actually is. They have citations and stuff. Okay. And I believe they said that in Midnight Rising as well. But I listened to that a few minutes ago. So he's sentenced to death. And interestingly enough, Victor Hugo, who is currently in exile himself, um, really becomes, starts advocating for the death sentence to be commuted. And it really kind of shows how global this issue has become and how American abolitionism is very popular in Europe. Well, I think the thing is, by this point... Most European countries have freed their slaves. Yeah, most European countries have gotten rid of slavery. England's gotten rid of it. France has gotten rid of it. I don't know about Spain and Portugal. Kind of everybody except for Russia. And Brazil. And Brazil. But yeah, like, England and France have gotten rid of it. England and France have gotten rid of the slave trade for ages. I mean, it takes them a little longer to get rid of, like, slavery, slavery. But... America's, like, very behind in this issue. But I think it also shows kind of how popular John Brown was amongst, like, the global elite. Like, if 
you have major authors from other countries passionately advocating. Okay, but Victoria Hugo is also like a very radical like political figure. Yeah, but there were also like British people advocating and stuff. True. So while he's in jail, he actually does get an offer to break out of jail from one of his like old Kansas friends. And it could have worked, but John Brown turns down this offer. He says, nope, I'm too old to live a life on the run because you know when you're 59, you're ancient. But the other reason why he turns down this chance to escape is by this point, he's like, look, if I die, I will become a martyr and I want to be a martyr. It sort of goes back to his whole like religion. Deeply religious yeah, like, motivation. Think about like all these religious martyrs. He could be like a second Jesus Christ. Well, no, he actually never saw himself as a Christ figure. Yeah, he would think that was like very um, blasphemous of me. He was more of like a Gideon figure, I'd argue. So he's sentenced to death. He passes on the chance to escape from jail, and he's ultimately executed on December 22nd, 1859. And on the day of his execution... Which is by hanging. Black-owned businesses all across the north shut down for the day. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so the black, the free black community had a lot of respect for him, and that's how they decide to pay tribute. Which I think, again, is like pretty impressive, that he was able to garner that level of respect amongst former slaves. Um, his execution happens at about 11.15 a.m. And his last words apparently are, don't keep me longer than necessary, be quick. Which I think are pretty fucking awesome last words. Badass. So his execution is a fairly popular event. It's watched by a lot of people who end up playing a pretty large role in the Civil War, including Robert Stonewall e. Lee, Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and a well-known actor named John Wilkes Booth. Fuck John Wilkes Booth. Who definitely won't play a major role in American history. John Brown's raid and death really divide the nation. He is hated in the South. The South thinks he's a traitor. His raid on Harper's Ferry creates major fears of slave uprising, fears of Northern incursion. In response to his death, we see all of these white militias in the South being like, we need to protect the Institute of Slavery. Might I propose that he actually wasn't intruding into the South and maybe the Southern slave catchers shouldn't have been going into the North and shouldn't have been holding people as slaves? Yes, might I propose that owning human beings as property is morally wrong? What a concept. But yeah, in response to his raid, the South becomes really afraid that more people already try this. We see all these like new militias rising, and a lot of these militia groups are going to form the basis of the Confederate Army when the Civil War breaks out about a year later. The North has a very different response to John Brown and his staff. Northern abolitionists see him as a total martyr after his death. Henry David Thoreau gives a speech where he calls John Brown an angel. Um, once the Civil War breaks out, there's a very popular Union song about him. So the song is John Brown's Body, um, and there are a couple different versions of it. The version I personally, there are two versions that I really like. One has a verse about hanging Jefferson Davis from a tree, which is lit. And then the other one is a little more poetic, and that's and that one compares John Brown to John the Baptist, which really starts kicking off these very biblical descriptions of John Brown as 
a John the Baptist figure. And then when Battle Hymn of the Republic to the same tune is written, it goes so far as to compare John Brown to Jesus Christ with the lyric, he died so men may be free. So this is kind of like the, so people should really start making John Brown into this myth and this legend. So you're saying John Brown superstar? Oh. A new musical, perhaps? I like that. Um, so we do start seeing, like, pretty soon after his death, this idea of, like, John Brown as, like, amazing figure. But he wasn't 100% popular in the North, for example, when his body was being taken from Virginia to New York City. The mayor of Philadelphia was so afraid that the train it was on was going to get attacked and there were going to be riots. He actually sent a fake train and rerouted the actual train with John Brown's body to avoid confrontation. Yeah, I mean, because he was this, like, radical, slightly scary figure who, like, was a symbol of rebellion and rioting. Um, And he was, like, very divisive. But, like, because of him and Harper's Ferry, like, you do, like, you can sort of trace what he did to the election of Abraham Lincoln. Like, he's so radical that the Republicans, this, like, free soil anti-slavery party, are like, look, we need to choose, like, a slightly more moderate figure. We can't be choosing, like, a Thaddeus Stevens-type person. Rip. So they choose sort of the more middle ground candidate, who is this tall, gangly, high-pitched voice dude named... Abraham Lincoln! <laughs> And Abraham Lincoln's sort of more appealing to the less radical northerners who aren't quite as into John Brown. And like obviously he gets elected and we get the Civil War. So wrapping up this podcast, like what do you think like John Brown's legacy should be? As someone who taught high school students in like AP history and normal US history, and like this was even in California, which is like definitely more on like the liberal side of things, John Brown like isn't taught like that that much he gets like a few paragraphs in like the chapter of the textbook like building on the civil war like it doesn't really take the side or at least the textbooks that my students were using didn't necessarily take a side of like was he good was he bad it was more like here's this raid he did it sort of split the country further and was like one of the big events that like led to the civil war because it made the south really pissed off and like it made the south want to break away and then it like shows a picture of john brown and all my high school students were like, oh my gosh, he looks so crazy. He looks like a fucking vulture. But like, what is, what do you think like, the legacy of John Brown should be? So I think the current, well, I think the current legacy has actually changed a little bit because like I said at the beginning of the podcast, for such a long time, there was this very pro-Southern narrative that he was crazy and a terrorist. But I think that's from the Reconstruction, which also paints the narrative that Ulysses S. Grant was a drunkard and a horrible general, and Reconstruction was inherently corrupt and wrong, both of which are incorrect. So I think his legacy, I mean, I think he's an American hero, because I think even though he did violence and killed people, he was morally in the right. And I think that sort of behavior is excusable to end slavery. Um, I know some people might not agree with me, and so I guess a more nuanced view would be he was a he perpetrated political violence but it was for a cause that he morally believed was right and i honestly think he forced abolitionists and free soilers to take a more radical perspective and kind of really allowed them to be like no slavery is wrong and we're going to fight about this yeah so my opinion 
Um, I'm not like a John Brown maniac the way you are. I'm not a John Brown maniac. I just am very interested in tipping points in power and have a lot of sympathy for freedom fighters. Um, basically, my take on John Brown is I think his ideas were good. I think his modes of carrying out those ideas were maybe a little bit flawed. Um, yeah, I think he was a little bit of a maniac. But I do think like his ultimate like ideology minus the violence was really great. And I do enjoy like, at least when I was teaching, I did enjoy like talking about him with students. But I think you can't have that ideology without the violence because his ideology without the violence was just abolitionism. I think the violence was necessary to create change. Yeah, and I mean, I did definitely like comparing him to my students, to people like Frederick Douglass and like William Lloyd Garrison and being like, okay, like William Lloyd Garrison was considered like super radical, but then we have like some like John Brown. And I do enjoy like showing photos of him to my students and having them be like, yeah. Um, So yeah, that's John Brown. Most of the research for this episode came from Midnight's Rising by Tony Horowitz, John Brown's Body in the New Yorker by Adam Gopnik, the Smithsonian article, John Brown's Day of Reckoning by Fergus Borderwich, and the National Park Service's articles on John Brown, Harper's Ferry, and his family. As always, if you want a complete bibliography as well as relevant images, you can visit the website at sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next time, we will be leaving the United States in the buildup to the Civil War and going back across the Atlantic to Europe, specifically France, to explore the madcap drama of Napoleon Bonaparte's family. As always, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Sad Girl Study Pod, on Instagram for those dank dank history memes at Sad Girl Study. Catherine, do you have any social media you would like to plug? Yeah, you can follow my history Twitter, which is Catherine Rush. Rush is R O S C H, it's one word. Um, on that, I mostly tweet history memes and talk about the development of political power in modern history, and then also talk a lot about reproductive health care because that's what I currently do for a living. And the best way to help the podcast is to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Also, please tell a friend so we can grow. And as always, let me know how I'm doing. Please rate and review, or else I'll be sad. Thank you.